guys can go ahead and take a seat. Well, good morning, Docs at Church. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Rudy Hartman. I get to be on staff here at Doxa working with our college students. Um, and I'm grateful to be here with you as we're continuing our series through Genesis. So if you have a Bible, you can head over to Genesis chapter 28. I'll catch up with you. You can open it up, turn it on, whatever you got to do. You're just going to want to get there. Um, I wonder if any of you have ever seen, you probably have if you've been like in a mall, uh, those, those racks of clothing, you know how there's straight racks and then circle racks? You know, circle racks that always have the, the sale tag on top of them, right? So that's where you'd find me at the mall. A couple things you need to know about me. I'm from Florida. I'm at the sale rack at the mall or TJ Maxx, amen, and yes. Uh, or, or like, uh, yeah, I'm at the sale rack. Let's just be honest. I am the sale rack guy. And I love those circle racks um, because they've got the sales on them and because when I was eight years old, they were the perfect size for you to be able to, to open the clothing, get inside of, clothe the clothing bef- behind you, and then pop out and scare your mom. Did anyone else? You don't have to. It's, it's cool. It's true. You don't, one person. Look, look at God. Won't he do it? Um, right? Okay. There's, th- it was an incredible experience. I loved getting to do that to my mother. I know it drove her insane. I could not honor her enough for how tolerant and patient she was with me as I did that. Uh, as, as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old. Um, but there was one moment that I so clearly remember. Westfield Mall, Brandon, Florida, J.C. Penney's. I'm inside the circle rack, and I have this thought that I'm just going to sit here, and I'm going to wait for a while. And I'm going to really build the tension with my mother and hide as a child. This is just the brilliance of an eight-year-old. Um, and, and I get in there, and I hide, and, I'm, and a minute goes by, and then two minutes go by, and I hear my mom, like, somewhere, like, off in the corner, Rudy. And, and I'm like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to really get her really, really good. Not thinking that she's lost her kid. Like, I've hidden from her. This is not good. A couple more minutes go by. I'm really feeling good. And then I'm like, okay, next person that walks by, for sure, has got to be my mom. So I open the clothes. And I pop out and say boo, and two things happened at once. One, I scared a woman who was not my mother. And, and, and two, I looked around and realized that my mother was actually nowhere to be seen. I was lost in a J.C. Penney's, which is just a terrifying experience. And, and th- this happened in about the space of three minutes, but I did the, the little kid walk where you just kind of like walk around and you're just like, where? You, you do the thing where you're like, there's aisles and rows, and I'm looking down aisles and rows to try to find someone that resembles my five-foot-two mother. And I, I'm, I'm looking for her, and I, I can't find her, and, and I start to feel alone. And then I start to feel a little bit anxious, like what's going, I don't know what's going, I start to feel distressed. And I mean, in my eight-year-old brain, again, I begin to feel like, oh no, have I been abandoned by, have I gone too far? Have I been abandoned by my mother? And this happens in the space of like 180 seconds. Like my mom comes around the corner, finds me, she was doing the thing any responsible mother would do, retracing her steps until she could find where I, I was. And she, she found me, um, but I, I still... I'm 29 years old, and I still remember, like, those experiences of being like, oh, no, I'm alone. Oh, no, what's going to happen? Oh, no, have I been uh, abandoned? And I wish I could tell you that in the last 29 years, that was the only time that I'd had those experiences. But it's not. It's not. In fact, those experiences have marked much of my life, alone, anxious, distressed, 
and abandoned, and I don't think it's unique to me. And honestly, I don't think it's like a really good question to ask. Has anyone else in here ever felt alone, distressed, anxious, or abandoned? Because I know that you have. The question that I'm actually more curious with today is, are you feeling that right now? Like, like is, is that what you're, you're kind of carrying in with you this, this morning? Alone, a little bit anxious, a little bit distressed, a little bit, a little bit just feeling abandoned. In our, in our text this morning, we're going to zero in on Jacob, who at this point in Genesis is literally alone, is feeling conditionally anxious, Genesis 35 looks back on this moment and says that he is experiencing distress and he feels, in a very real sense, abandoned. Now for the note takers, I got you. Here's the sermon in a sentence, kind of where I'm going this morning. Here it is. This is where we're going to land, start, continue, all of it. And it's this. God provides assurance for the one who feels abandoned. That, that's what we see in Genesis 28. That's what we're going to unpack in Genesis 28. That God provides assurance for the one who feels abandoned. And we're just going to ask and answer three questions this morning. One, why does Jacob feel abandoned? Two, how does God provide assurance? And three, what is Jacob's response? And I hope that was enough time to get to Genesis, Genesis 28. That's what intros are for, if you didn't know, to buy you time to, to get to the passage. Um, we're going to look back a bit to answer our first question, but we can start in verse 10 of our chapter this morning. I'd like to say that if the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So let's get in the text and see what we got. Chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He reached a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from that place and he put it there at his head and lay down in that place. All right. Why does Jacob feel abandoned? Jacob feels abandoned because he is alone, he is anxious, and he is distressed. Let's do a little bit of work to, to see where our boy's at in the text right now. We literally come upon Jacob in the wilderness traveling alone. And he's traveling alone away from his home because of his own choices. His decision to lie, to cheat, and to steal the birthright and the blessing from his brother Esau. We saw that last week. Jacob has essentially been blessed and booted by his father Isaac and told to go to Haran to find a wife. Now, everything that Jacob has ever known has taken place within the context of his family and his home place. It's what he was born into, and there was a sense of security that had marked the entirety of his life. And for the first time, we're seeing Jacob experience loneliness, the loss of the security that comes with being in his home. He's in a new place. He's moving towards a new people. It's just Jacob in the wilderness. He is quite literally alone. But he's also anxious. See, a small detail to fill in from why he's left his home is seen in the chapter before. You see, Jacob has lied, cheated, and stolen from his brother, his older brother, the one who was supposed to get the birthright and the blessing from his father. Now, just so you understand the severity of this, there are times in Scripture that look back to this particular moment and this particular section of Scripture, and it says that God is the God of, uh, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Now, because Jacob has stolen the birthright and the blessing, he gets a spot in that lineage. But if he had not, the position would have shifted for Esau. That line would actually be, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. When you're, when you're thinking about the lineage of Jesus seen in Matthew chapter 1, it would have been Abraham, Isaac, and 
Esau. It is a position that has been stolen in redemptive history by Jacob from his brother. But furthermore, and perhaps more applicable to the present reality of Esau, is that he was supposed to get two-thirds of what his father had as the firstborn, getting the blessing, getting the birthright. Now he's only getting one-third. Now we can spiritualize that as much as we want, but here's the reality. Jacob messed with his bag. Like he messed with his money. He has stolen from his family. And furthermore, this event is not a secret anymore. So Jacob has also messed with his honor. This deception was an act of public shame to his family, but specifically dishonor against Esau. And so Esau is, to put it lightly, very, very angry with his brother. Frankly, he intends to kill him for messing with his position, with his money, and with his honor. And while Jacob has a head start in being sent away, he is still anxious that his brother is going to show up as a silhouette in the horizon behind him, rolling up on him with his crew to kill him. And he's not going to get a text from his mom that's like, hey, Jacob, love you, hope the wilderness is going great, Esau's on the way, right? Like, that's not going to happen. He is constantly living in this conditional, circumstantial anxiety because he does not know if he's going to look back and see the one who's coming to kill him. Him. So he's lonely and he's anxious, and these produce within him a distress. Like I said, in Genesis 35, years later, Jacob says, Let us rise again and go to Bethel, that's this place, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answered me what? In my day of distress. So let's keep this straight. Jacob is deeply emotionally distressed. This is a really interesting Hebrew word used here. It communicates this idea of like tightness. Like you're having to squeeze through a a, a tight place. It's uncomfortable. There's pressure. It's this idea maybe colloquially today of like a rock in a hard place. I'm alone in the wilderness, and I don't know anything about where I'm going, but I'm anxious that if I stop, my brother will catch up with me. And if I go back home, then he'll kill me for sure. My family has sent me out. I have no security that I've had before. I'm distressed. So all of this, alone, anxious, distress, culminating in this sense and this feeling of abandonment. Who's with Jacob? No one. What hope does he have? Little to none. And in the middle of this tightness, in the middle of this distress, Jacob feels abandoned. And let's be honest, Doxa, that's probably not too far off from the experiences that we've had in our lives as well. I'm not sure what it is or where it came from, but I'm positive that when it comes to feeling alone, anxious, distressed, or abandon that you're either in it right now, that you just got out of it, or you're potentially moving towards it. That these have always been a part of the human experience and often mark the condition of life for so many. Maybe you aren't alone physically, but you feel alone relationally. Maybe you aren't anxious because your brother is trying to kill you, but you've got reasons to feel anxious that are circumstantial or conditional. Perhaps it's not a clinical anxiety, and there's medicine uh, uh, for that, which is a part of God's common grace, but it is a cultural or circumstantial anxiety, an anxiety that comes from, from work, from your family, from your roommates, from your status, from your future, anxiety that seems to be in the air we breathe. That's why the poet W.H. Auden called this the age of anxiety, and these capitulate into a tightness in your mind or in your chest, in your heart, in your life, a distress that it feels like you go to sleep with and you wake up with. And in all of this, it feels like you have been abandoned to it. Perhaps by other people, by community around you, by family, by people that you work with. 
Maybe, let, let's get frank, like maybe you've experienced this abandonment in churches that you've been a part of before. Maybe some of you are wondering if God himself has abandoned you to this loneliness, to this distress. You see, that's what Jacob is feeling. This is Jacob's experience, and often, to some degree, it is also ours. But I want you to pay close attention, Doxa, to what happens next. Because it's here, in his loneliness, in his anxiety, in his distress, in feeling abandoned, it is here that God speaks to Jacob. You see, God has brought the proud low. Jacob, who had cheated, lied, stole, and deceived his way into birthright blessing and inheritance, finds himself at the pinnacle of his pursuit of upward mobility through unethical means, is sent out by his family and humbled in the wilderness. I need you to understand, Docs, that this is very much like God to meet us after we have been humbled. It is often true that the proud are brought low. And whether you are humble yourself or whether you've been humbled, it is not uncommon for God to meet people profoundly in this place. The high are brought low and the low are raised up. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and that is the experience of Jacob in this moment. It is here that God speaks to Jacob and provides assurance to the one who feels abandoned. And as you feel abandoned this morning, As you have felt abandoned, maybe as you move into when, I did not say if, when you may feel abandoned next, I want you to hear the assurance that God gives to Jacob because it is not just for the initial hearer in the text, it is for the reader, it is for us as well. So God provided assurance to the one who feels abandoned. Our second question, how does God provide assurance? How does he provide this assurance? He does it by giving two things to Jacob. In the middle of Jacob feeling abandoned, distressed, and alone, God provides a picture and a promise. A picture and a promise. In verse 12, we see this picture. And he dreamed, this is Jacob, a stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. Maybe if you have the, the ESV, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. God provides a picture for Jacob, and at first glance, it's a fairly odd one. Can we just be honest about it? Like, he sees a stairway, or maybe your translation says a ladder. It's the same idea. It's the function, not the form that's important here. But the text goes on to say the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So just quick aside, 30 seconds on angels very briefly. we got to pay attention when they show up in the text. Okay, what are angels? Angels are messengers or heralds of God. And in this dream of Jacob, we see them ascending and descending. Now, I think ascending comes first because, so that we might understand what Jacob is understanding, that before he was aware that they were there, they were here and at work. Angels are messengers of God carrying out his purpose and his plan. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 defines them as ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So the purpose of the picture, however, is not for Jacob or for us to focus in on the angels. It's for us to focus on what the angels are ascending and descending on. This ladder, this staircase is the center of the picture. All right. So before Led Zeppelin borrowed from the Bible, the stairway to heaven was right here in the text. Genesis 28, this staircase is intended to communicate to the lonely, anxious, and distressed Jacob that there is a definitive connection between God and the earth. There is a definitive connection between God and the earth. And it is an important picture for Jacob and for us to understand. 
Because in Jacob's day, the idea around deity would have been that God, uh, a deity is separate from us. Or they would have thought that a deity was uh, subjected to us or subjected to the earth. But they would not have seriously considered this idea that God was connected to the earth. That he would be so powerful that he existed and ruled in a different place, but so personal that he was present and speaking with Jacob. It would have shook the paradigm of a deity in Jacob's day, and frankly it does to us as well, because if we're honest, we prefer to understand God as one or the other, either powerful or personal. We can sometimes create this false dichotomy when we think of God. That he's so powerful that I can't be near him or he's so personal that I can just treat him casually. See, if we think of God as just powerful and not personal, we can see him like he's some sort of foreign political dignitary, like a foreign head of state. He's got authority, he's powerful, he's in command, and we'll never be friends. He will never know me. I will never know him. So I could treat him as an idea and as a concept, but not really structure my life around him. He's powerful, but he's distant. But if we think of him as just personal and not powerful, then we can see him kind of like a stuffed animal when we were a kid or now. Whatever. There's room for that. It's okay. Uh, a, A false sense of comfort that comes on the scary nights or in the dark moments, but he's not actually able to do anything about it because he's subjected to the conditions of creation and circumstance around us, not sovereign over them. This latter is communicating that God is both. He is powerful and up there, and he is present and down here. He is not separate. He is not subjective. No, this story is God showing Jacob that he so loves the world that the powerful and personal God, that he has established a point of definitive connection between himself and humanity. And that's revealed in this picture of the ladder, the staircase. So God reveals in this picture his purpose and plan to Jacob. And then God reveals not by showing, but by speaking to Jacob. So first we see the picture, and now we see the promise. Just look at verses 13 through 14. The Lord was standing there beside them and saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out towards the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Okay, so God speaks this promise that he's given to Jacob's grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, and now he's giving it to Jacob. It follows the pattern as it's been given before. You and your descendants, you'll be like the dust of the earth. Land is incorporated into the promise, and the blessing will spread from your family to all people. God is revealing again his faithfulness to keep the generational covenant that we've seen throughout the story of the Bible so far, this generational promise. But look at what comes right after. This is not uniquely uh, given to Jacob, but remember the condition of Jacob as you hear these words in verse 15. He is lonely, he is anxious, and he is distressed. Remember that as you hear verse 15. Look, says God, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you picture and the promise, and this promise unpacks the picture. You see, the picture shows a definitive connection between God and humanity, and the promise gives definition to that connection as God says, I am with you, I will watch over you, I will not leave you, and I will make a way. 
So up to this point, Jacob only knew about God. He knew about God from Grandpa Abraham and Father Isaac. But now, in his lowest moment, alone in the wilderness, anxious and distressed at the idea of his flesh and blood brother finding and killing him, Jacob comes to know the God who says he will be with him. He doesn't know about him anymore. He knows him. He has seen the picture and he has heard the voice and he has the promise that this God will be with him. Jacob has been brought low in the wilderness, and it was exactly where he needed to be for God to come to him and for him to know the promise that he would be with him. See, God would be with Jacob just as he had been with Abraham after he left everything he'd ever known, just as he had been with Isaac when he was on the mountain providing a ram to be sacrificed instead of the son, just as he would be with Joseph, Jacob's son, who would be unjustly accused of sexual assault and put into prison, but God would be with him there, just as God would be with the Israelites as he raised up Moses to lead them out of slavery, just as God would be with Joshua as he led the Israelites into the promised land, just as God would be with his people, watching over his people and would not leave his people, check this, regardless of their foolishness and sin. He's with them always, regardless of their foolishness and sin. Something critical to see here about the faithfulness of God revealed in this text is that it is dependent on the nature of God, not the activity of the one he's being faithful to. So let me come at our next for a minute. We've got to be honest as readers of the text. God is more faithful with Jacob than we would have been. I mean, this is Jacob, liar, deceiver, betrayer. His name literally means those things. He doesn't deserve this. But the faithfulness of God gives him this picture and this promise anyway. So remember our context. Jacob's alone in the wilderness. The anxiety and distress around the threat of Esau is still very real. But has Jacob been abandoned? No. The assurance of God to Jacob through the picture and the promise is a resounding no. You have not been abandoned, Jacob. God reveals to Jacob that he is the definitive point of connection between himself and earth. He will carry out the promise of the family of Jacob. He is with Jacob, will watch over Jacob, will never leave Jacob, and will make a way for Jacob. No, Jacob, you have not been abandoned. And God has provided this assurance to the one who felt abandoned that he is not he is not he is not abandoned so how does jacob respond let's keep in the text verses 16 and 17 when jacob awoke from his sleep he said surely the lord is in this place and i did not know it he was afraid and he said what an awesome place this is this is none other than the house of god this is the gate of heaven So we see Jacob wake up and his feelings of abandon have been replaced with a sense of awareness. Yes, he is still alone. Yes, his brother still wants him dead. Yes, that distress is still real. But he knows that in the middle of that, he has not been abandoned. And this awareness of God's presence allows Jacob to uh, define his reality. Now check this. Jacob does not deny his reality. He doesn't deny that he's alone and pretend that there's a bunch of people around him. He doesn't deny that 
that his brother Esau is still trying to kill him, but the reality is that his sense of abandon has been replaced by a sense of awareness that the God who just showed him the picture of his connection and spoke a promise of his witness is actually with him in that moment. He's not denying that reality, but he's also not being destroyed by that reality anymore. He doesn't deny. He's not destroyed by it. Rather, in the middle, he is able to define that reality. Yes, I'm alone in the wilderness. Yes, my brother is coming to kill me, but my God is with me. He is aware of God's presence with him. That's why he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he calls it Bethel, which literally means the house of God. And the house of God would be the place where he would go or you would go to worship the God of the house. So his awareness of God has moved him to worship the God who was with him. Keep reading verse 18. Early in the morning, Jacob took up the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and he named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. You see that in Genesis 13, Genesis 12. Then Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me me with food to eat and clothing to wear, if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all that you give me. So Jacob builds an altar, and this is interesting. This altar was intended to mark a a moment so that in the future he would remember what had happened here and would worship as he remembered. He sets up a stone, he pours oil on it, which is an offering, um, and, and then he makes a vow that carries with him for the rest of his life as he worships the God who is. Now, you might have heard that vow and thought, Rudy, that sounds very much like an if-then statement, but that was actually just a common language of treaty uh, during that particular day and era. It is because God has actually made the promise first that Jacob is making a confession that you have said that you will do this, so you, the Lord, shall be my God. Uh, Because of the picture and promise revealed, God has gone from being the God of Grandpa Abraham or Father Isaac to, to now Jacob's God. He knows this God and vows to live a life devoted to God in his dependence. He says, I'll rely on you for food, for clothing as I go on my journey. I'll confess that you are my Lord. And and he actually even talks about sacrifice through the the decision of Jacob to tithe. Look look at what he says here at the end of this. Just this shift. He says, I will give to you a tenth of all that you give me. He's saying, I'm actually a steward. So I'm just going to give back to you what you have given to me. And this is all a part of the worshipful response to the God that he now knows. So it is awareness and worship that followed the assurance God of, sorry, it is awareness and worship that followed the assurance that God has provided to Jacob that he has not been abandoned. That's where we we land here. We we see that, that, yes, Jacob is feeling all of these things, but God has provided assurance. There's a picture, there's connection, there's a promise, I am with you. And Jacob's response of being aware of the presence of God with him and worship, just follow from what God has shown to him. So Doxa, I just want to preach a little bit to close this morning and turn the tide from Genesis 28 to 2700 Novation Parkway. You see, because God provided assurance for the one who felt abandoned, and God still provides assurance to the one who feels abandoned. So if you feel abandoned this morning, I want you to know that the same assurance that God provided for Jacob, he has provided for us in Jesus Christ. 
So check it out. When we talked about the picture before, we only partially answered that question, right? We know the purpose of the ladder. It's a definitive connection between God and humanity. But it does beg the question for us, what is the ladder? What is this staircase? What is the definitive point between the powerful and personal God and sinful humanity? Well, there's an interesting moment at the end of John chapter 1 where Jesus pulls us back into this story but makes one crucial and illuminating adjustment to the picture that answers our question. In John 1.51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened, like Jacob has. You'll see the angels of God ascending and descending, like Jacob has. It's supposed to throw his mind back to, to this moment. And they're descending on the Son of Man. Have you ever had someone ask you, like, where's Jesus in the Old Testament? There's a pattern of Bible study that's called redemptive historical interpretation, and there are these moments within that pattern of Bible study called Christophanies, moments where we see Christ in the Old Testament. And in Genesis 28, we have such a clear moment of this, because in the place of the ascending and descending angels on a ladder or a staircase, Jesus instead uses a title for himself. He says that they're ascending and descending on the Son of Man, who is the ladder. Jesus is answering our question. He's saying, I I am the ladder. I am the definitive connection between God and humanity. Jesus Christ is the way for us to know the powerful and personal God who so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever would put their trust in him, who would rely on the ladder, would be saved, would inherit, would, be, would receive eternal life from God. This is why in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me because I am the ladder. It's the picture that points us to Christ, but so too does the promise. See, the promise still goes with the picture. God told Jacob that he would be with him, but this wasn't the only time that he said something like that. This wasn't isolated to Jacob. In Exodus 33, verse 14, he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not be fear or be dismayed. In Isaiah 41, verse 10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 43, verse 2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. With you and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Haggai 1, verse 13. Then Haggai, a messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people on behalf of the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. He has been saying this to his people and has been building to this picture of the moment of the coming of Christ. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we see it come up again in Matthew chapter 1 verses 22 and 23. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right now, we understand from Revelation chapter 1 that Christ is among the churches. And one day, Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God will be with man and the dwelling place of man will be with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. God indeed assures the abandoned that he is with them. And you might hear all that and say, oh, you're really excited, Rudy. And I am. But I'm too far gone. 
You can be really excited about that up there on the stage, but I'm, I, you don't know me. <laughs> I got too much going. I, there's too much. I've, I've gone too far. I've messed up. I'm too bad. Is he, I know that's a great, is he really with me? I'll say this. If he said it to Jacob, then he'd say it to you. Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver, a lying, cheating, stealing, family dynamic, ruining man who God is immensely gracious and patient with. I said it earlier, God is more patient with Jacob than we would have been. And Christian, look at me, hear me. Christian, know this. God is more patient with you than you are. He is patient. He is with you. The promise of withness goes beyond even the wildest dreams of Jacob in Genesis 28. And is seen in some of the last words of Jesus who says to us, those who would follow after him, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God gives assurance to the abandoned through the picture of Christ as the definitive way to God and the promise of Christ to be with us always. He gives us those assurances. So how do we respond? I think in the same way. With awareness and with worship. So awareness. Think back to Jacob's words. The Lord is in this place and I didn't even know it. And I get nervous that that's the present reality for many of us today. That we see all of these incredible texts of God promising to be with us. The words of Jesus before he ascends into heaven saying, I will be with you always. Acts 17, 27. Paul saying of God that he is actually not far from each one of us. And maybe we'd still say the thing that Jacob says. The Lord is in this place and I, I didn't even know it. Doctor, the question is not whether or not he is in this place. The question is whether or not you're aware of it. One response to the assurance of the picture and promise of Christ is for us to choose to cultivate a daily awareness to God's presence with us. This will change the way that you approach your practices of spiritual formation. They are not a performance for you to put on for God and in front of others. They are a practice of you becoming aware of who God said he is and how he is with you. They are not a checklist to get through, but a cultivation of your awareness of the ways, the words, and the works of Christ who has saved us and is with us. So that means when you open your Bible in the morning, you're not just doing it to check a list. You're doing it to cultivate daily awareness that God is with you in this place and you can know it. That when you pray God is with you in this place and you can know it as you open the Lent devotional to read what Katie wrote tomorrow that God is with you in that place and you can know it how could your life change if you stayed aware of the reality that he is with you always that God is in this place wherever this place happens to be for you at any moment and any time. This place in your home, this place in your school, this place in your work, this place at your apartment, this place at the drive through this place in the streets. What could God do through your cultivated awareness of his presence? What could God do through you if you knew that he was with you always? How would you move towards others around you if you cultivated the awareness that he is with you always? We cultivate awareness in response to his picture and his promise. But we also worship. You see, full assurance deserves our full devotion. 
This altar was set up by Jacob so that he would remember the promise and the picture. And so he would remember the vow that he had made to worship God, to depend on him, and to give in relation to the way that God had given to him. So an appropriate response to this full assurance given by God is for us to set up an altar in our hearts to Christ and to worship him each day and throughout the day, remembering the picture of Christ, the latter, remembering the promise that God is with us and remembering, Christian, our repentance of sin and looking to Christ as our Lord and Savior. What if you took your next step in living a life that was uh, formed and founded in worship to the God who has made a way for you to be with him and who promises to be with you always? What could God do through your life of worship? We have to think of worship as something that just happens in spaces like this, and it will happen in spaces like this. The Bible tells us to sing more than it tells us to read itself, so we're going to sing. But what could God do through your life of worship as you were aware of his presence with you at your workplace this week? When you walk in on Monday and you just take a deep breath and remember, you were with me and exhale, I will worship. Here, home, 5 p.m. that night, connection group after an exhausting day, the dinner with a friend in your neighborhood that you want to share the gospel with but you're nervous to. What would it look like if awareness and worship came together and started to form your life? Not just what could God do through you, but who is on the other side of that life? For Jacob, it was literally his family. But who would be impacted if you today said you were going to take your next step in living a life that is marked by worship of God? To build an altar to Christ daily in your heart so that you might not forget the gospel, but remember and be aware of him and worship him with your ways, your words, and your works. Awareness. And worship. Now let's be honest. That seems like a lot. (laughs) Because it is. And you won't do that perfectly. I got great news. Christ is our model of these things. He's our means for these things. But in between that, he's our mediator. He is the one who uh, forgives us for when we fall short. He is the one who makes up the gap of our effort and our work. He is the one who who makes a way for us to come to God. He is the one who allows us to know the connection and this withness. And along the way, my invitation to you is to just do one thing. It's to look to the latter. Wherever you are this morning, let me end by just encouraging you to look to the latter. So if you're here and you feel alone... You can look to the latter who is Christ, Christ who saw and sees you in your loneliness and invites you to be with him. When it seemed that there was no one else around you, Christian, he was. You may be alone, but you are never truly alone because of the God who saved you is the God who is with you this morning and every day. So look to the latter when you feel alone. If you're here and you feel worried about circumstances that are out of your control or perhaps that you caused, you can look to the latter. You can look to Christ who calmed the storm in the sea and can calm the storm in your soul. You can come to the one who promised to be with you, who forgives you and makes a way for connection and relationship between you and God the Father. If you're here and you feel distressed, you feel tight, you feel pressure, you can look to the latter who makes a way for you to come to the Father. If your trust is in Jesus Christ, the worst possible outcome for you of this life is eternity with God forever. He can handle your distress because he was distressed in the garden before 
he died for your sins. He knows your distress fully and he can handle it so you can bring it to him. If you're here and you feel abandoned, you can look to the ladder, to the powerful and personal God who provides his assurance that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you are. But I would implore you to look to the ladder who is Christ. He is what you've been looking for. He is what you've been longing for. You can put down your sin, the thing that keeps messing up your life, the things that you keep running to over and over that do not provide the fulfillment that you're seeking for and find it in the one who does fulfill. You can put down your sin and come to him today. He is patient. He is inviting. You have not done too much and you have not gone too far. He is the only way to heaven and he will give you assurance here on earth. He died to take the punishment of your sin deserved. He took it to the grave, left it there and rose again so that one day you might rise with him in new and eternal life. Hear me, eternity is a long time and everybody spends it somewhere. So come home to Jesus, look to the ladder and trust him as your Lord and as your savior today. So Doxa, look to the ladder. And as we sing, let's sing in response to the assurance that God provides to us who felt abandoned. Let's look to the ladder and worship. Pray with me. Jesus, you are kind and you are good. God, how do we need to respond? Do you feel abandoned, alone, anxious, distressed? Remember the picture. Christ is the ladder connecting you to God. Remember the promise that he is with you. Are you here and not a Christian? I'd implore you, I'd invite you again, look to the ladder. Look to the one who is Christ. He will provide you an assurance for the questions that you ask. feel abandoned, he will be there. So God, as we worship, uh, we come uh, not to try to impress you, not try to get anything from you, but simply in response, we want to bring a sacrifice of praise. We want to worship you in response to what you have done through Christ. We were once lost and we've been found. We were once dead and now you've made us alive in Christ and that is enough. So you invite us today to come to the altar, to mark this moment, to remember the work of Christ to bring us to you and the promise of Christ that he is with us all.